you know, to be honest, a lot of times when I hear talks about gratitude or Thanksgiving, at the end of these talks, I, I tend to feel kind of frustrated at the most and uninspired at the least. And the reason why is because a lot of times I feel these talks kind of give a, a mistaken impression as to what God is all about. In other words, I find a lot of these talks give the impression that God is just kind of fussy, like a really grumpy old grandfather who is very fussy in particular about how he wants people to relate to him, right? So unless you thank me in a particular sort of way at the appropriate time in response to my gifts and blessings, uh, I'm going to get mad, right? And so it seems to be from this perspective that the only reason why we're called to give habitual praise and thanksgiving to God the Father is because otherwise he's going to get upset. Now, obviously, I want to give you a slightly different perspective on the notion of praise and thanksgiving and gratitude. And to begin, perhaps I might cite the example of, say, Ignatius Valeola, the founder of the Jesuits. And so the example that comes to mind, apparently back in the day when the Jesuit order was still relatively new, a bunch of them went to, say, Ignatius to ask for permission to modify their regular prayer routine, at least for a limited time. And so basically the argument was like right now things are kind of busy, we're really busy with apostolic works, and so maybe to kind of keep things practical, maybe we can reduce our prayer routine uh, for a limited period of time because we're committed to our life of discipleship to make sure we can get everything done, you know, given the limitations of the day. And in response, it's kind of interesting, St. Ignatius certainly made some concessions, right? And so he certainly said to his fellow Jesuits, um, yeah, you can kind of modify your prayer routine in this way or that way, or, you know, drop this prayer routine or whatever the case may be. Uh, but at the same time, he said, one thing you must never drop is this thing called the conscience examine. Now, I think it's pretty safe to assume that anyone who's watching this video knows what an examination of conscience is, right? So when you go to confession, for example, you examine your conscience, uh, perhaps using a pamphlet or whatnot. But a conscience examine is something very different, right? And so instead of simply reviewing your sins, as you would do in the context of an examination of conscience, what you're doing is that you're going through your day, the past 24 hours, where the case may be, and looking for where has God been throughout the course of my day. And so even though it's true that, yes, the Lord challenges us to do better, to be better, at the same time, he also invites us, again, to recognize his presence. Where has God blessed me throughout the course of the day? Where has he graced me with his presence? And did I recognize these moments? Did I recognize those times where he mediated his love through people and through circumstances? Did I attribute these moments to the Lord my God? And in fact, did I respond accordingly, primarily with a deep sense of praise and thanksgiving? And my suggest to everyone that the reason why St. Ignatius was so firm in this point in terms of strongly urging his fellow Jesuits to never let go of the conscience examined at all costs was because he knew about the intrinsic value of this particular spiritual practice. Because for starters, the conscience examiner reminds each one of us that God doesn't love us simply generically, but instead he loves us uniquely, concretely, and individually. And that's why, for example, if you're struggling to kind of believe that God loves you individually and uniquely, it's a really good practice to kind of do the conscience examine every single day or every single night. But you know, on top of that, I would suggest that the main reason why it's so good to practice the conscious examine on a regular and habitual basis is because it keeps us in right relationship with God. In other words, it reminds us of this really important and dare we say essential reality that God is the one who always gives and we are the ones who are meant to receive. And so to further expound upon this point, let me cite the example of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And so as you probably know, with regards to the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the thing obviously begins with the introductory rites, right? So think about the greeting, think about the penitential act, the gloria, the opening prayer and whatnot. But then after that, we have basically the two main parts of the Mass, right? The liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. 
the Liturgy of the Word, of course, in the context of the weekend Mass, has the first reading, the psalm, the second reading, the gospel, the homily, the creed, followed by the prayers of the faithful. And, of course, the Liturgy of the Eucharist shifts attention to the altar, which culminates in our receiving of the Holy Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ our Lord. But more to the point, roughly in the middle of the Mass, there's the offertory, right, with the gifts are being brought up. And then there's the preparation of the gifts, right, which involves, of course, primarily the bread and the water and the wine. And the key image for our purposes is when the wine is combined with the water. And at this stage of the Mass, what you're supposed to do, in accordance with the rubrics that you find in the general instruction for the Roman Missal, is to combine a lot of wine with a little bit of water. And so the way I like to think of it is that we're called to combine an abundance of wine with a mere drop of water. Water, of course, representing our mere humanity, while the wine represents Christ's divinity. Now, obviously, the primary symbolism which is meant to be conveyed through this particular part of the Mass is the great mystery of the Incarnation, right, where Christ humbles himself to share in our humanity. That said, perhaps I might also suggest that this image of the drop of water combined with the abundance of wine also reflects what it looks like to be in right relationship with God. And so the whole idea is that regardless of who we are, regardless of our particular circumstances or what issue or problem we're facing in the current moments, we're always called to be the single drop of water, to focus on being the single drop of water, and to allow the Lord to be the great abundance of wine. And you see what this means, practically speaking, just to kind of take the thing one step further, is that regardless of the particular problem that we're facing, like even though the thing might be serious and we really care about the outcome, and there might even be a certain time pressure at play, we're still called to renew our efforts and focus to be the single drop of water and to allow the Lord to be the great abundance of wine. You know, as a bit of a side note, I remember giving a similar talk that I'm giving to you right now to one of my previous parishes, again, using the image of the drop of water and the abundance of wine to show what it looks like to be in right relationship with Christ. And I remember one of my parishioners being so struck by this particular example that she wanted to convey it to other people. And it just so happened that I happened to be around kind of eavesdropping listening to her try to teach this concept to other people and, and she got it kind of slightly wrong and so what she said it's kind of funny actually was that even though we might begin initially in the early stages of the spiritual life to simply be content to be the drop of water and allow the lord to be the great abundance of wine eventually when we reach spiritual maturity we actually become the great abundance of wine in response to which i thought oh no that's totally not the point at all because in reality even though it might sound kind of counterintuitive a real sign of authentic maturity in the context of the spiritual life from a Christian perspective is to learn to be, in fact, perfectly content with being the single drop of water and allowing the Lord, again, to be the great abundance of wine. You know, just in case you're listening to this now and you're feeling kind of down yourself because you recognize you're not quite there in the context of your own spiritual journey, perhaps I might refer you to the example of St. Paul the Apostle because St. Paul, in reality, struggled with precisely this same point. And you see this coming out really strongly in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where St. Paul talks very famously about his thorn in the flesh. Now, obviously, when it comes to the thorn in the flesh, we, we don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh actually was. And so some people speculate that he struggled with a stutter. Some people think that he struggled with nearsightedness. And some people think that he struggled simply with sexual sin. In any case, regardless of what the thing actually was, we know that it was a hidden struggle, which makes it in a certain sense all the more painful. And we know on top of that that it was a recurring struggle, right? So three times St. Paul begs the Lord to take it away, three times uh, representing all the time, right? So again, this is a recurring hidden struggle. But of course, what does the Lord do in response? He doesn't take away St. Paul's thorn in the flesh. And in fact, on top of that, what he says to him is, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. 
And of course, what is this? But in a certain sense, another articulation of this image of the drop of water in contrast with the abundance of wine. And so given all that, the exhortation in a certain sense directed to St. Paul is like, look, you got to learn to love the thorn in the flesh in the same way that all of us are called to embrace being called to be the drop of water, again, in contrast to the great abundance of wine. But, you know, the thing I want to impress upon you is that this exhortation and invitation extended to St. Paul by the Lord is not meant to be an invitation to humiliation, but instead it's meant to be an invitation to intimacy. Because in a certain sense, what the Lord is saying to St. Paul in this particular circumstance is like, look, an important prerequisite to intimacy with me, intimacy with the Lord your God, is to have this dangling sense of insecurity which is grounded in this radical sense of dependence where you have enormous clarity in the back of your mind that I'm the one who always gives to you and you are the one who are called to receive. And if you think about it in a certain sense, this thing we're talking about here, the sense of radical dependency on our Father in Heaven, is the very essence of Mary's spirituality. Because of course, what does the Blessed Virgin Mary say to her cousin Elizabeth at the scene of the visitation? She says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And so Mary is perfectly content to be nothing so that the Lord might become her everything. And again, she doesn't see this nothingness as a point of condescension or humiliation, but she sees it as a source of her greatness. In other words, my personal greatness is not defined by the sum of my gifts and talents, but is defined by the fact that I am radically dependent on God who himself is great, who himself is wonderful, who himself is the embodiment of truth and beauty and goodness. Okay, one final example. I'll kind of end with this. And so John Eldridge, in the context of his really great book, Get Your Life Back, he draws upon the image of the manna in the desert as you hear in the book of Exodus. And so as you might recall, as a matter of background, in the aftermath of being delivered from slavery in Egypt, the Israelite people are traveling through the desert in anticipation of the promised land. And they're feeling kind of hungry. In response to which the Lord gives them manna from heaven, right? And so the interesting thing about this manna is that it comes to them day by day, so they can't store it up. And it's enough simply for that day, right? So it's not good for two days, it's simply good for that day. So they're forced, in a certain sense, to wait for the manna for that day, which will carry them through that day, and again, not a second day. And John Eldridge, again, he talks about this, and he says, you know, there was a time in his life where he thought he might be so filled with God that he wouldn't need God, right? So this idea that one day I become the abundance of wine. But then he realized that that's not the way things work. And so, for example, every single day, because of the great frailty of the human condition, each one of us, without exception, we need to sleep, we need to eat, we need to drink, and so on and so forth. And he goes on to say that we're called to recognize in our bones that it's not a failure to say that I need God more, and we're not a spiritual disaster to say that we need God yet again, but instead we need to recognize this is the proper order of things. Again, this sense of radical dependence on my Father in Heaven. And again, that's why the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that we're called to pray every day, is framed the way that it is. Give us this day our daily bread. And again, what do we see in this? But an invitation to be content with being a single drop of water. An invitation to be content with having the thorn of flesh, this dangling sense of insecurity. And to be perfectly content with living out of the stance of radical dependency on the Lord our God, which ordinarily might be a cause for stress, anxiety, or concern but for the fact that the Lord our God just happens to be our Father in Heaven. And may God bless you all.